you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter number five. James chapter number five. We are in the last chapter of James. We're going to be there uh, in this passage today and, and next week for sure. James chapter five. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse number 13. Uh, the title of the sermon is True Faith and Prayer. Beginning in verse number 13, the Bible says, If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is quite a complicated passage, and we're going to deal with it, um, the whole passage, and then dive into some details next week. But um, thinking about what James is doing here reminded me of all the way back in my high school years, back a long, long time ago. Basketball was my, my favorite sport. I ate, drank, and slept basketball. I just, I love that sport. I could play it year round and, and just loved it. And we had a, we had a mediocre basketball team at best. And our coach, we had a, we had an awesome coach. He could squeeze every last little bit of talent out of the team. And believe me, that wasn't very much talent. But from time to time, we would play a game where we didn't do anything right. We just absolutely stunk. We were like the bad news bears or something like that. And we couldn't do anything right. And when that happened, we learned right away that the next practice was not going to be a good practice. Because whatever fundamental we were deficient in in that game that he chose, we were going to drill. If it was defense, we did defensive drills and worked on defense the whole two and a half hours. If it was rebounding, we went through rebounding drills and rebounding principles for, for the whole practice. If it was free throws, we, he would increase our free throws by double for the whole next week. If it was uh, dribbling or whatever else it was, half-court uh, traps, full-court defenses, whatever it was, we worked on the fundamentals um, to, to, to shore everything up. And what I learned from that experience is that fundamentals are foundation to everything in a pursuit. Sometimes you just have to go back to the basics, the fundamentals, because they are everything. And in a sense, that's what James is doing in this passage. With the passage that we read today, James is going back to the fundamentals. 
Remember that he wrote this letter to Jewish believers who had been scattered from Jerusalem. Uh, They were forced to flee because of persecution. Being both Jewish and Christians, they faced hostility in a pagan culture. And James was uh, extorting. He wasn't extorting them. He was exhorting. How's that? Okay. He was exhorting them to, uh, to be patient and endure trials. In chapter 5, he returns to that theme. In the first six verses, we find out that one of the ways that they are being tried is that the rich, wicked people were oppressing, probably through the court system, poor people, many of them being believers in the churches that he was writing to. In verses 7 to 11, he calls for them to have patience during this time of trial, endure it. And James exhorted these believers who are about ready to collapse under the weight of afflictions to prop up their hearts and resolutely determining to persist. And so one of the ways that he does that in the final way, the whole final last part of his uh, book is writing to them to tell them to go back to the basics of prayer. He encourages them to pray in every life situation. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, pray. If you're sick, pray. If you're sinning, confess in prayer. Uh, The Christian life is a prayer-saturated life. I came across this quote some years ago that I love. It's by a Methodist minister from the early 20th century. His name is Samuel Chadwick, and he said this. He said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep God's people from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. That's right, amen. The only power that we have over Satan is through praying and through the proclamation of the word of God. This passage has been a hotbed, a debate for interpreters for centuries. What is the sickness that's spoken of in verses 14 and 15? Does the prayer of faith always restore? What kind of healing is mentioned here? And because this passage is dense with biblical truth, and it's difficult to interpret and explain, there's no way that I can do that in the few minutes that we have here today. And so today, I want to look at the passage as a whole. Then next week is going to be much more teaching than preaching. I want to dive deep into particularly verses 14 and 15 and explain um, that. We'll see that there are uh, possibly as many, well, I'm going to give you three primary interpretations of these verses. There's actually more than that. I might mention those. I haven't decided yet. But, and, and then give you a way to, to come to a resolution on these verses. But today I want to talk about five principles of prayer that we see from James. Number one, and by the way, none of these are rocket science. This is just a reaffirmation of everything you already know. Number one, pray when suffering. I already mentioned that these believers are are suffering at the hands of the rich. James encourages them to pray. He says this, is any among you suffering? Let 
him pray. Now, what's interesting when you read the book of James is that he is probably um, sticking this prayer in opposition to what he recently covered, which was grumbling against one another and the taking of oaths in verse number 12. So rather than grumble to God and against one another, and rather than take an oath, believers should pray. He asked, is anyone suffering? He commended in the prayer as to pray as an antidote to following into the temptation to pray. Or, okay, I just totally butchered that. Let me start over. If anyone's suffering, he asks that question. Then he tells them, in your suffering, go ahead and pray as an antidote to your grumbling. There, I got it right that time. What should we pray for? Have you ever thought about that? If anyone's suffering, what do you pray for? Well, one of the things you pray is, Lord, help me not to grumble during my time of trial. That's really easy for us to do, isn't it? We all like to grumble. We all like to poor me. We all like to complain. But the heart that is set on God, the heart that is set on the Lord Jesus Christ is a thankful heart that immediately takes things to God in prayer. And so you pray, Lord, help me to have a thankful heart. Help me not to grumble. There's another thing, though, that James mentions all the way back at the beginning of his book. Five verses in to his letter, he says this. He's talking to them about trials and the fiery trials. And he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the second thing that you can ask for, according to James, is, Lord, give me wisdom to know what? How to glorify you in my suffering. How to um, best represent Jesus Christ. How to make it through. Help me make decisions. Whatever the decisions may be, God, I need help. Give me wisdom. And God, James says that God gives liberally. He's generous with his wisdom. Amen. That's so wonderful to know. I, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've been in a situation where I, I just say, God, I have no idea what the right answer is here. And, and, and uh, just finally either make a decision or, or even go a direction or give somebody advice. And it turns out that no matter what my advice is, whatever the decision is, God works marvelously in and through that. He's the one that has the storehouse of all wisdom. And another thing I found out that as we mature in prayer as believers, our prayers change in trials. Uh, in speaking to someone who has been a believer for a very long time, uh, they said this, they said, I've learned to stop praying about my circumstances and started asking the Lord to teach me more about him through my circumstances. You want to say that's really hard, but God is teaching me how to do it. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, this is not in the midst of trials, but one of the, the stark changes in my prayer from when I was a young man to what I am now is this. When I was young, I used to say, Lord, help me to be effective. Help me to be efficient in all that I endeavor to do. And as I've gotten older and more mature in ministry, I've scrapped all that. And I just ask the Lord, Lord, make me more like you. 
Make me more like Jesus Christ. That's the yearning of my heart. And if I'm like Jesus Christ, he'll work any way he wants in my life because he's that creative and he's that powerful. And so prayer is a tremendous source of comfort. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When you come to God in your affliction... God comforts you, and during affliction, that's your primary concern most of the time. But what God also allows us to do is then know how to comfort somebody who is in affliction. You know, I've, I've experienced that. Uh, as you know, we've been through trials in the last year. And initially, I was just completely blown away by how when people ministered primarily to Heather, but also to me, they knew the exact right thing to do because they had been through the affliction and God had ministered to him. I love that about the body of Christ, don't you? And I'll say another thing about when you're in affliction, I remember poignantly as we're going through the initial stages of the trial last year that... Um, for my whole ministry, I would hear people talk about going through a, a severe trial, and they'd say, I could feel the prayers. I, I'm going to confess, I was skeptical. I, I really was. I was skeptical. And then we went through it. And bless God, I felt the prayers of others. People, our prayers during affliction are effective and they matter, and God calls us to pray in affliction. And when life is difficult, and when believers are weak in faith, weary in persecution, crushed by affliction, they must continually plead with God who will comfort them. That is a basic spiritual truth that we cannot forget. But there's a second principle that James gives us right behind this one, and that is this. We need to pray when we're cheerful. We need to pray when we're cheerful. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I know you're thinking this doesn't seem like prayer, but if you've lived in the Middle East, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of the times in the Middle East, when they pray, they sing their prayers. And so when he says, if anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise praise. He's talking about praise to God. And so when you sing, when your heart is cheerful and you just focus on God and you sing whatever hymn, whatever praise song that's on your heart and you're praising God, that's not just a song. That is a prayer. And you are singing praise to God. The word sing is, is used five times in the New Testament, and every time it's used, it's talking about singing praise to God. It's very easy to pray to God when life is hard and circumstances are troubling, but it may be even more important for us to turn to God during times of cheer. A lot of times we become forgetful, don't we, during these times of cheer. I love the fact that we can sing to God. 
we see singing to God in praise and prayer all the way through Scripture. Think about Exodus 15. The, the Israelites, they've gone through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army has been decimated. And what do they do? Moses writes a song of praise, and they sing a song of praise to God. Think about Hannah's song of praise right after the birth of Samuel. And of course, all of us know the Magnificat, right? The prayer, the song of Mary after the angel of the Lord announced to her that she would give birth to the Messiah. And so during the times when we are cheerful, we are to remember to praise God for his goodness. And then we see also in this passage, number three, the elders are to pray over the sick. Verses 14 and 15. Let's read these together. I'm going to make some comments, but I'm going to move through this very quickly because we'll cover this next week. Verse 14. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now we come to the most misunderstood and debated part of this whole passage. And I will deal with thoroughly with these two verses next week. But I want to make some observations. I want you to start thinking about this with me for just a minute. First, notice in verse number 13 that it's the individual who's praying. But in verses 14 and 15, who's praying? Elders. Elders are praying. I want you to notice something else. There is uh, some form of comparison going on here. For example, I want to show you this. In the word translated sick, if any among you is sick, means spiritually weak about 50% of the time in the New Testament is talking about spiritual weakness. There's an example, Romans 14.2. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's the same word as sick in James. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 8.11. 8, uh, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And so the other part of the comparison, I said, is you have this weak person, and who is asked to pray for this weak person. The elders, the ones who you would view as being spiritually what? Strong. The spiritually mature. Um, they're the ones encouraged to pray. And so there's a contrast going on. The spiritually victorious ones are praying. But I want you to notice something else about verse number 15. He says, what does a prayer of faith do according to verse number 15? It saves that word is sozo. Sozo, almost universally in the New Testament, means salvation, eternal salvation. And so what is going on with that? Let me give you one more. Verse number 15 also says that it saves the one who is what? Sick. Guess what? That's a different word, totally different word. Then the word sick in verse number 14. And what's interesting about it, it's only used twice in the New Testament. Let me show you how it's used in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 14 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Okay? 
So the only other time this word is used, this word sick, means weary in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 3. Now, you may be thinking I'm tipping my hat, but actually I'm not. All I'm trying to do is to show you that these two verses are way more complicated than it appears on the surface. Now, I plan to give you at least three interpretations, possibly more next week, probably stick with three, and then help you come to a conclusion. But I know what you're going to do. You're going to run out to the internet, and you're going to find your favorite preacher, and you're going to listen to one sermon by your favorite preacher, and then you come back and see if I agree with your favorite preacher. That's what I would do. There's a little problem with that. Well, let me say this, and then you'll say, then you'll listen to me. If I don't agree with your favorite preacher, you're like, well, that edge comb, he doesn't know anything, you know, because Dr. So-and-so said this. But this is interesting. People I respect highly disagree on this passage. This week, as an experiment, I listened to two of my favorite preachers, and they disagreed with each other. Now, if I named them, you'd know both of them, and some of them are your favorites, and they don't agree. And so there's a lot of debate in this passage. So what I'm asking you to do, if you research this passage, don't walk in with a preconceived idea. Listen next week with an open mind. Will you do that with me? And leave your stones and tomatoes and things at home in case I don't agree. All right, let's go on. Let's, let's move very quickly now through this passage. Verse number 16, another principle is this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I want to point out one word in this verse. Therefore. In English, what does therefore do? It connects ideas. Guess what? It does the same thing in Greek. It's a connector. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Therefore is connecting verses 14 and 15 with confession of sin. What kind of sin are we to confess to one another? Am I supposed to confess that I'm jealous of my neighbor's yard? Am I supposed to confess that, um, that I only read the Old Testament one day this week and not both Old and New Testament, my devotional life? Am I, am I supposed to confess I ate too much for Father's Day lunch last week? I didn't, by the way, so don't judge. No, the confession that we are to do would be confessing the sins that dampen the fellowship of the church because they're suffering, they're tempted and prone to uh, the grumble against one another. And so the confession is those relational sins that, we're do that are, are causing problems in the unity of the church. Maintaining open, sharing, praying relationships with other Christians will help believers from bottoming out in their spiritual lives. Such relations give, give help um, and, and they give spiritual strength to provide victory over sin. They also provide godly pressure to confess and forsake sins before they come overwhelming to the point of spiritual defeat. God intended for prayer and confession to bring the body together. There is so much power in an assembly that has prayed together and confessed sin together. And then one more uh, point of James is this. 
prayer is overwhelmingly powerful. The second half of verse number 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I hate that translation of that. It's so awkward. The King James, if you know the King James says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Did I get the right King James language there? I did, didn't I? Thank you. Probably, of the modern translations, the NIV has the best translation of this. I want to stick it up there so you can see it. The righteous, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, there are two encouragements here that I want to give you. Number one, the righteous person is not some super Christian. Because I know you see Elijah. When they use the term righteous person, they're talking about believers, Believers who are trying to live for the Lord. Yeah, you're not perfect. You're not sinless. But your heart is turned towards the Lord. That's the kind of person he's talking about. Are you a person who is trying to live for the Lord? You have, for the most part, as best you can tell, an upright heart. Guess what? James is telling you that your prayer has great power. The second thing that we can see here is that your prayer will be powerful and effective because the answers comes from the almighty ruler of the universe. It's not the prayer itself that has power. It's the person to whom you are praying that has all the power of the world. Do you realize how much power you have at your disposal? You, right here in Culpeper, can affect evangelism in Poland with missionary Ben Lair. You can affect the, the uh, effectiveness of, of the pregnancy center here in Culpeper, Young Life in Rappahannock County, there is success. Your power has, your prayer has the ability to touch all of these places around the world because not who you are, but because who God is. And so James finishes with his illustration Look at the power of prayer in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and bore uh, the earth bore its fruit. Now we think of Elijah, we think of super Christian. But that's not James' point of emphasis. James' point of emphasis, he says, well, first of all, Elijah's just like us. He puts his sandals on one strap at a, one shoe at a time, right? He's just a man. What interests James is the fact that he's an ordinary man. He was a righteous man, but he was a man and he knew what to pray for. But look at how the Bible describes his prayer. He prayed fervently. Now what's interesting about that little phrasing is it's two different words and it literally could read, he prayed as he prayed. He pray prayed or he prayed with prayer. That's the idea, it's, 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 an, it's a doubling up. God hears us when we fervently pray for others, we intercede for others. This is a wonderful praying church. I want to just say in conclusion, this is a wonderful praying church. I know that. We pray for the sick. We pray for those in trials. We pray for our families. But how many pray for the spiritual heart of our assembly? Do you pray for the gospel to go out with great power? Do you pray for the success of young life? 
Do you pray that we may become more like Christ each day? Do you pray, like Jesus said, that our unity would be like the unity of the Trinity? We live in the constant tension. This is the constant tension that we live with. Knowing that God is sovereign and has an unalterable plan for the universe, and knowing and believing that Scripture says that your prayer changes things. Because James said, Elijah prayed that it might not rain, and it didn't. You see, prayer changes things. We live with that tension. Scripture tells you that your prayer is powerful and effective. Do you really believe that your prayer makes things happen? Do you believe that the God of the universe wants to hear you talk to him, praise him, and intercede for others? Oh, may God call us to be a praying church. Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness. I ask that you will put a fire in our hearts to pray. That we will pray with confidence knowing that our prayer changes things not because of who we are, but because of who you are. In Christ's name, amen.